Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So, uh, Tracy, you saw The Graduate, I'm sure. Yep. Uh, you probably remember the scene that lots of people remember because it's kind of a famous one-liner where a family friend give, gives Dustin Hoffman's character, Ben, who is the person who has just graduated, a one-word piece of career advice. And that word, of course, plastics. Plastics. <laughs> and I love that movie. And The Graduate came out in 1967. So you might think, based on that, that plastics were invented just a little while before then if it was considered the next big industry. But in fact, class- plastic came into being decades earlier. And as I sometimes do when there are these uh kind of mystery items of public opinion, I will ask friends and family about when they think something happened, just to get a, a rough gauge as I go into things. And I got answers from, wasn't that a World War II thing? To, um, wasn't that like 30s or post-depression? Like, <laughs> But they weren't, they're all a little later in the game. It was actually way before that. And that's what we're going to talk about today is plastics. And kind of the man who's come to been come to be known as the father of plastics. Less than a week before President Abraham Lincoln would deliver the Gettysburg Address, Leo Henrik Bakeland was born in Ghent, Belgium. That was on November 14th, 1863. His parents weren't wealthy. His father, Charles, repaired shoes, and his mother, Rosalie, was a domestic servant. And Leo was really smart and curious from a very, very young age. Uh, but his thirst for knowledge was almost kind of shut down by his father. He wanted him to take a practical route in life, and he wanted to he wanted his son to apprentice as a tradesman when he entered his teen years. But uh, mother intervened, and she advocated that her son should attend high school. During his high school years, Leo would attend regular school during the day and then classes at Ghent Municipal Technical School at night. His technical school classes included economics, mathematics, physics, and chemistry. Yeah, so he was like basically doubling down on his education. He was taking a lot of advanced extra courses uh, just because he was, as we said, very curious. And he began attending the University of Ghent at the age of 17, was younger than the average age, uh, under a city scholarship. And just two years later, he had received his Bachelor of Science. So he continued sort of this accelerated learning. Uh, And he continued his studies after his bachelor, uh, his bachelor's degree. And in 1884, he graduated with a doctorate of science, maxima cum laude, at the age of just 21. When he was in school, Leo fell in love with the daughter of his professor and mentor, Theodore Swartz. Leo married Celine Swartz on August 8, 1889, and the marriage was a very happy one. For their honeymoon, the two of them went to the United States on a travel scholarship that uh, that Leo had been awarded. And they really enjoyed their time in the States, and they decided to set down permanent roots. They eventually settled in uh, in New York, and Leo took a job as a chemist with photo equipment manufacturer E&AT Anthony and & Company. The couple had three children, George, Nina, and Jenny. Jenny was born in 1890, so that was very early in their marriage. But she died of influenza when she was only five. Yeah, uh, George and Nina went on to adult lives, however. Uh, in 1893, Bakeland left his job at the photo equipment uh, company, and he founded the Nepra Chemical Company. As part of his new chemical venture, he worked on advancing the way photographs were developed. 
For a long time, indirect sunlight was part of the process, but that was really limiting, and that meant that an overcast day could just shut down the process completely. So this new process that he developed uh, used artificial light from gas lamps, and this was a pretty huge step forward. Uh, it was also a pretty huge success for Nepra. And the Velox paper that he invented and that was used in this method spiked in sales, although it was not instantaneous. It took some time to catch on. He once said of his Velox paper and this new developing technique, quote, I had been too optimistic in believing that the photographers were ready to abandon the old, slow process of making photographic prints. I had to find out then how difficult it is to teach anything new to people once they get used to older methods. So, yeah, he didn't uh, have immediate catch on. He went on to talk about how really it was sort of the amateur photographers and the new photographers that were willing to try it. And they sort of got the groundswell of support around this Velox paper. And eventually, interest in the paper grew. And by 1899, it really had the attention of the Eastman Kodak Company. There's actually an interesting story here, but we have to preface it with a caveat. This was relayed by his longtime driver, Dick Richter, and it was a number of years after the incident reportedly happened. Uh, yeah, so in 1957, Richter, who had been the chauffeur for uh, the Bakelands for quite some time, relayed this story of how the inventor uh, and the Eastman Kodak Company came to their eventual agreement. Uh, the Velox paper that was developed at Nepra Chemical was really putting a dent in Kodak's sales, so the larger company made an offer to buy the patent, and initially Leo Bakeland refused. So Kodak came back with a much bigger offer, which was a million dollars. Bakeland supposedly gave Kodak the information to produce the paper, which Kodak did, but the development process did not work. Uh, so we've mentioned on previous episodes when we talk about inventors that patents often have a step or a component omitted so that the original inventor can retain trade secrets and prevent anyone from using the patent without paying royalties. And it appears, at least again, according to this story told by their their longtime driver, that Bakeland did precisely that with his Velox paper. When the paper didn't work in the Eastman Kodak labs, they went back to Bakeland, who allegedly told him that they paid for the patent and not the knowledge that was in his head. After he got an additional payment of 100000 additional dollars, he explained to them that a chemical solution was needed to activate, to activate the process and then later removed. So whether or not this chauffeur's version of the events is accurate uh, does make a good story. But we do know that Bakelin sold his Velox paper rights to Eastman Kodak for $1 million, which is a huge sum of money when you consider this is the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and so flush with money from that deal, he and his bride moved to a much larger home in the area of Yonkers, New York, known as Harmony Park. And their new estate was called Snug Rock, and it included a three-story house, a separate cottage, a garage, and a stable. And the stable was uh, like a one and a half stories. And they eventually converted it into a lab so that Dr. Bakeland could just do his work right there at home. And before we get to what he does with his free time that he has now that he is a man of means and leisure, uh, do you want to take a word from a sponsor? Let's do that. Alrighty. Squarespace.com is a really easy way to set up a presence online. Uh, it lets you design these incredibly beautiful, clean designs for a website. It's drag and drop. It's intuitive. You don't have to worry about knowing how to code. You will have 24-7 customer support. 
standing by, ready to help you. You can do that via live chat or email support. And that is, as I said, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you'll be able to have your online presence be what you want it to be with minimal startup issues. Did you know you can create your own logos there? Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's free for Squarespace customers, and they basically will make sure that you have a quality logo for your website or your company if you're doing this as a commerce site at squarespace.com slash logo. Super easy logo creator. Also, if you are trying to monetize something, they have commerce plans uh, so you can set up easy ways to do transactions right there on your site. If you're hosting a store, that's great. Or if you are doing maybe a blog or a project that you're taking donations for, you're all set. And what's really cool is that mobile devices are going to be completely covered. Your website will look good, whether people are using a laptop, a tablet, a mobile phone to access it. It's made to cover all of those bases. So you can try this product risk-free. Just go to squarespace.com slash history, and you're going to get a free 14-day trial, and you will not have to give them your credit card to do it. If you like the product, you can keep on going. The cost is as low as $8 a month, and it includes a free domain name if you sign up for a full year. So if you use the offer code HISTORY, you're going to get 10% off your first purchase. So again, that is squarespace.com slash history. So uh, Leo Bakeland is in his new lab. He's really still quite young. He's only 35 at this point when he's made this huge deal with Eastman Kodak. Uh, and he's able to do whatever he pleases, which is kind of a dream for most of us. Uh, and his experiments started focusing on combinations of phenol and formaldehyde. And this was a popular combination for scientists to be working with at the time because of the resins it created. Uh, and they, there were various different uh, scientists and inventors working with it. And Bakeland was really frank about his interest in this area. He was in it because he thought it was really lucrative. So many experiments by other chemists had tried unsuccessfully to create an alternative to celluloid, which had been invented four decades prior by brothers John Wesley Hyatt and Isaiah Hyatt. They had come up with their plastic for a contest to create a substitute for ivory in billiard balls, which they won. Yeah, at that point, uh, due to some overhunting, ivory was getting harder and harder to come by. Uh, so billiard companies wanted to figure out a new way to manufacture their the balls used in billiards, and so that they sponsored this contest. I think the prize was like $10,000. Uh, and so Bakeland saw colleagues and, uh, you know, other chemists and inventors just constantly meeting with frustration over their attempts to create something that would compete with celluloid or be better than it. So he was like, I'm not going to get in that game. I'm going to focus on shellac instead. And natural shellac, which had to be harvested from a resin that was made by beetles, was almost always in short supply compared to demand at this time. It was uh, popular for use in electrical cable insulation. And as modern electrical needs were growing very quickly and called for more and more shellac, there was no way for the gathering of natural sources to keep up with that. So Bakeland thought synthetic shellac is the way to go. This is going to be a huge success. Working with his assistant, Nathaniel Thurlow, he developed a shellac, but it didn't turn out to be the gangbuster hit that they hoped for. So then they shifted to the idea of creating a synthetic resin that could be infused into wood and give it greater strength. And Bakeland noticed during these experiments with phenol and formaldehyde that, again, still using those because they were the popular resin combo, uh, that there was an interesting effect. So he was treating wood, again, trying to infuse it with uh, some sort of resin and make it harder, but it wasn't making the wood any harder. However, the wood was then oozing out a residue that was very hard. 
His notebook entry for his final experiment on June 18, 1907 reads, Asbestos plus A in sealed tube. I found tube broken, perhaps in irregular expansion, but the reaction seems to have been satisfactory because the resulting stick was very hard, and below where there was some unmixed liquid A, there was an end, question mark, of solidified matter, yellowish and hard, and entirely similar to the product obtained by simply heating A alone in sealed tube. This looks promising, and it will be worthwhile to determine in how far this mass, which I will call D, is able to make molded materials, either alone or in conjunctions with other solid materials, as, for instance, asbestos, casein, zinc, oxide, starch, different inorganic powders, and lamp black, and thus make a substitute for celluloid and for hard rubber. Yeah, and just for clarity, and this is the way I laid out the the um, outline, that's not his final experiment ever, just on that day of June 18th that he writes this out. And his entry for the following day follows up on this work. So he really feels like he's kind of onto something. Uh, and the compound that he had been calling substance D, which he was able to reproduce, he then started referring to in his notes as it's spelled Bakalite, B-A-K-A-L-I-T-E. Uh, and while that first mention of the name is spelled with two A's, it shifted to Bakelite in subsequent notes. So B-A-K-E-L-I-T-E. And at this point, he had created the first wholly synthetic plastic. So a quick note on synthetic plastic. The Hyatt brothers had created celluloid by modifying natural materials. So cellulose, nitrate, and camphor. Uh, but Baglin wasn't using natural materials in his resin experiments. So that's how this is different. Yeah, that's why uh, it's referred to as a synthetic plastic. And according to a pamphlet that was written about the uh, apparatus that was used in Bakelite production, and we're going to talk about that apparatus in just a moment, this was also the first instance of an entirely man-made material. And I don't know why, but reading that while I was putting together notes on this just kind of blew my mind that the first man-made material was in the early 1900s. His first patent application related to Bakelite was in 1906, although it wasn't until 1909 that the invention was announced. He was a smart man, and he wanted to protect his work throughout its development. He actually had hundreds of patents that were related to the invention of Bakelite alone. Uh, and it's actually not surprising that he was so careful with his patent filings, since his patent for Velox is really what set him up in life and and made him a success. In a speech that he gave to the American Chemical Society on February 8th of 1909, he officially launched Bakelite into this public sphere. Using a steam pressure unit called the Bakelizer, which I just love that name, uh, he started this semi-commercial enterprise right there in his own lab, producing Bakelite for customers, most of whom were using it for electrical insulators. The Bakelizer, which is in the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, although not at the moment on display, is about six feet or two meters tall and roughly a yard in diameter. It looks like a giant fat capsule on legs with a round base. And according to the museum site, it's still in usable condition. Yeah, it sort of looks like a wonderful uh, steampunk fan's dream because it's got lots of cool valves coming off of it and, uh, you know, a big cool valve handle. It's really quite lovely. Uh, Bakelin's orders quickly grew to the point that he could not keep working just from his lab and his, you know, one little Bakelizer. And so in 1910, the General Bakelite Corporation was founded. 
It eventually changed its name to the Bakelite Company, and over the years it expanded until it occupied a 128-acre plant. So the demands for these plastics was huge. Initially, Bakelite was used in automotive and electrical applications. Because it was melt-resistant and wouldn't conduct electricity, it was just really perfect for those uses. But soon, its use broadened into a wide range of items, including pens, jewelry, handles for kitchen, kitchen utensils, and the like. Uh, genuine Bakelite jewelry is now really a collector's item. Yeah, if you do a quick search online, you'll find uh, various sites that are like, okay, how do I identify whether your jewelry is genuinely Bakelite jewelry or not? And there are some wacky little tests that you can do. And the company's slogan became, quote, the material of a thousand uses. And its logo was the infinity symbol to represent its seemingly endless possibilities. Uh, and before we get on to sort of talking a little bit about Dr. Leo Bakeland as a person, we're going to have a quick word from a sponsor. All right. So back to talking about Dr. Bakeland. Uh, while he was busily shifting the world of applied chemistry forward, he was also working on really fully embracing life in the United States. And his diaries reflect a belief that America was far better, in his opinion, than Europe. And he became a U.S. citizen, actually, in 1897. He worked to eliminate his Belgian accent entirely. So it was really important to him to just completely blend in and become fully American. And he even named his son George Washington after the first U.S. president. So he was pretty on board with uh, U.S. patriotism from a very, very early time of his arrival here. We talked about how... His inventions were pretty lucrative, and, of course, that helped him work on his own projects, but his family also used their good fortune to help other people. Yeah, his wife, Celine, uh, who had helped her husband throughout the years as a bookkeeper, was an accomplished painter of her own. Uh, she worked mainly in oils. She focused a lot on landscapes. You can still find some pictures of her paintings online. Uh, and she, kind of focusing on that love of the arts, founded an after-school arts program for children, uh, per- particularly children whose parents were working, uh, with the motto of, quote, bathe them, feed them, and give them exposure and experience in the art. And the Prospect Settlement House, which served as the base of operations for this program, was open from 1908 until the mid-1930s. Here's a fun anecdote in Dr. Bakelin's, uh biography on the Yonkers Historical Society's website, and it has to do with his clothing. He only had one suit. But Celine really wanted him to have more than one suit. But she knew that he would not be willing to pay how much it costs to buy a nice a nice suit, even though they could easily afford it. So she went to a clothing store, picked out a nice suit for him, paid $100 of the $125 price, and then asked that it be put on the window in the window of the shop with a $25 price tag and sold only to her husband. Yes, yeah, so she went home and she told her husband, Leo, about this amazing deal on a great suit. I think it was a blue serge suit. And he was incredulous. Uh, but just the same, he went to the store to investigate his wife's claim, and he did end up purchasing the suit. So Celine Bakelin's plan was a success. Or it would have been, except for the fact that uh, Dr. Bakeland sold the suit on the way home to an admiring neighbor who was a lawyer and offered him $75 for it. So he was terribly pleased with himself that he made $50 out of this deal. (laughs) So this may make it sound like he was miserly, and uh, that's not really the case. He just didn't want to spend his money on clothes. 
For example, he was a really early adopter of driving as a regular mode of transportation. And in 1907, he drove all over Europe on a tour with his family. He purchased a yacht called the Ion and eventually got in the habit of traveling by yacht back and forth to work. So not so much that he was just hoarding money, but more that he was kind of particular about what he wanted to spend it on. Yeah. Uh, and he's described as a man who is always excited by science and chemistry, but also as being pretty mercurial. He would get pretty bored if he spent too long on any one project. So it kind of makes sense that he jumped from working on this photography development to working in resins to working in plastics to then being really into his cars and boats. So despite all of his many achievements and the significant accumulation of wealth and taking a yacht back and forth to work, uh, he always remained a pretty down-to-earth man. His granddaughter, also named Celine, said of him, My grandfather, in his later years, used to love to take the trolley into downtown Yonkers and wander, talking to street people. He came from a very poor background and felt a kinship with the poor city folk. Although he was a scientific genius and made a fortune, he disdained material things and remained a man of simple needs. He was happiest on his boat in old sneakers and white duck pants and shirt. In fact, he wore sneakers when he was formally dressed. I sort of love that. It's sweet. Uh, yeah, I think to him, spending money on on things like his boats and his cars, that made perfect sense. That was moving us forward and they could be used as transportation. It was very logical and not a uh, an extravagance. Uh, but <laughs> again, not so much the shoes and clothes. Uh Dr. Bakeland retired finally in 1939, and the Bakelite Company merged with Union Carbide that year. In late 1943, Dr. Bakeland was admitted to the Craig House Sanitarium in Beacon, New York, and he died of a cerebral hemorrhage there several months later on February 23, 1944. He was buried in Sleepy Hollow, New York. And he received many honors throughout the years, both when he was still alive and posthumously. So, for example, in 1909, he was elected president of the Electrochemical Society. In 1912, he became president of the American Institute of Chemical Engineers. Uh, He was president of another thing, the American Chemical Society, in 1924. He was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 1978. And in 1983, he was inducted into the Rail of Fame for United States business leadership. And that's just a small handful. If you look at a biography of him that like lists out all of his honors, it goes on for pages. Because he was both uh, as an inventor and a businessman, very, very smart and uh, pretty ingenious. His wife, Celine, died almost 13 years to the day after he did on February 27th, 1957. She was living in one of the family's homes in Coconut Grove, Florida at the time, and her remains were transported to Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in New York to be interred near her husband. The family estate at Snug Rock, unfortunately, was burned to the ground in a fire in 1957. As for Bakelite, it was eventually surpassed by other materials, and one of the big reasons was limitations that come along with coloring this plastic. Bakelite's natural color is amber, and it can be pigmented with other tones, Adding fillers to strengthen the the brittle plastic results in kind of muddy opaques, though. And it could never achieve really bright color tones, which kind of makes me wonder. um, Like, I, for some reason, always picture Bakelite in kind of a kitschy 1950s kitchen context. And I wonder if I'm actually confusing it with some other material. 
Well, if it's in sort of the tones like the um the avocados and even some of the kind of um duller shades of pink, it might still be bakelite. Yeah. I'm thinking the avocados that like the avocado dull yellow kind of colors. Yeah, exactly. Those very well might be. It's the the sort of poppier, like a true red or, you know, like a bright blues. They couldn't achieve colors like that with it. Uh, and now I will read a little bit of listener mail. This is a short one, but I just wanted to read this one. It's from our listener, Crystal. She says, hi, Holly and Tracy. Thank you so much for the podcast. It is delightful. I've been listening for years and recently discovered a new use for it. I am pregnant with our first child and have been afflicted with morning sickness. For me, some of it is mental because I have some intrusive thoughts about current food aversions, which compound the problem. I have been turning to the podcast more and more as a distraction, which has helped me tremendously get through those rougher moments while I'm at my mostly boring job. Thanks again and have a great day. Thank you, Crystal, and congratulations on your upcoming new person. I hope that all goes smoothly and delightfully. Okay, and now I have another one, which is also crazy charming. And when I got it, I think I read it aloud to everybody in the office. Uh, it says, hello, Holly and Tracy. My name is Waverly, and I'm just writing to tell you something you might find funny. I love your podcast, but I think the only person who likes your podcast more than me is my girlfriend's bird. He's a dove. Church. Church gets lonely sometimes, and he'll coo if no one's around to pay attention to him. The only thing that seems to keep him entertained while we are gone is your podcast. As soon as the podcast starts, he will stop cooing and listen quietly. No other podcast will satisfy Church, and I've tried several. (laughs) Moth Podcast and Welcome to Night Vale are a couple that he mentions. We also have to be careful and not play an episode more than once, because then he will not be quiet. I hope you enjoyed hearing about one of your more unusual fans. Uh, That is the cutest thing I've ever heard. So hi, Church, if you're listening. Uh, I just thought that was terribly sweet. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that with us. It really did delight me to no end. Uh, If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at Mist in History, at facebook.com slash Mist in History, uh, and on pinterest.com slash Mist in History. We also have a Spreadshirt store at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com, so you can get t-shirts and bags and phone covers and all manner of other goodies. Uh, if you would like to research a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Do a search for plastics and you'll get an article called How Plastics Work. Uh, You can also research almost anything your mind can conjure there. If you would like to visit us in our home base on the web, that is mistinhistory.com, where we have all of our episodes with a full archive. We have show notes for any of the episodes since Tracy and I have been working on the show, as well as the occasional blog posts. So we hope you visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 